The Cappuccino Podcast brought to you in association with Tactical Solutions. For all your tactical solutions, check them out at www.tactical.co.nz. It's that time again, so grab yourself a cup of joe and get ready for the Cappuccino with Constable Brian. So my guest today is Gwendolyn Smith, well-known friend of the Cappuccino, uh, now currently sporting Royal Honours as well, so congratulations on that. Uh, so it's now Gwendolyn Smith, M-N-Z-M. Uh, Gwendolyn is a clinical psychologist, a speaker, a blogger, an author of the titles, The Book of Knowing, The Book of Overthinking, The Book of Angst, and now The Book of Feeling Blue, amongst other books that she's written too. Uh, she also goes by the name of Dr. No, and she is proudly a person who lives in Auckland, Tamaki Mikado. So a big welcome back to the Cappuccino, Gwendolyn. Hi. <laughs> uh, hey, now, first question. I'm guessing you would have been writing this book in the middle of COVID. No, i tell oh. you which book, Brian, I did in the middle of COVID was the um, the orange one. I like my, my books are sort of colour-coded yeah. now. <laughs> the yeah. orange one is the, the book of angst. Right. And that was with a special um, section, like the like almost just over a third of the book was on um, social anxiety, the fear of being judged. Mm -hmm. I don't know if we talked about that one. Maybe that's why you don't remember it. Well, who knows? I get, yeah, I can't yeah, tell. Yeah, it doesn't so, matter. Uh, all good. Okay, so let's get to the book of Feeling Blue, uh, Understanding and Managing Depression. In your own words, depression knows no boundaries. It's oblivious to gender, race, age, religion, sexual orientation. Just try to understand and be kind, which is something that lots and lots of people have huge amounts of issues. And I've got to be honest, without blowing smoke, you know where. Um, you've done it again because it's a fantastic book with not only explaining depression, but also the origins of uh, why we feel blue and, as opposed to feeling purple and that type of thing. So yeah. let's talk about psychoeducation to start off with. You suggest that we break down the barriers and demystify and destigmatize all forms of mental illness, not just type depression. How do we do it? Because there seems to be an awful lot of, uh, how do I put this nicely, who are you not doing? There's people doing physical challenges. There's people wearing T-shirts saying break down the stigma. And I know that that helps. But in reality, if you're feeling depressed, somebody wearing a T-shirt saying um, it's not weak to speak or talk up and that type of thing really isn't going to help you that much, is it? I don't think so. But you see, I was I was the founder of the big destigmatization program here because of the stigma that I subjectively felt after my first manic depressive episode. Um, and you see, the thing is, Brian, too, is that stigma is external. So that's the group, the mm -hmm. community, the society. But the stigma is also internal, e.g. I am a failure. Yeah. I feel like this because I'm not good enough. Mm. So just a note there on stigma. I I have been very disappointed to not actually witness 
any evidence of the spending of the supposed $1.6 billion given by the government to mental health. Because if you had significant resource, you could do the odd thing on TV with John Kerwin um, or Mike King's show, you know, Mad Hatters or whatever it is. And mm -hmm. uh, what I've been trying to do and with not much joy is get um, the Book of Knowing, which is the first one, which mm -hmm. I wrote for kids, into schools. Mm -hmm. Because because you've, you've got to teach on an individual basis. You're right, Brian. You can't just slap a billboard up. There's no shame in being depressed. No. Yeah. You know, you might, someone might look at it and think that's interesting, but whether or not you're making any significant difference I would say would be questionable. Mm, yeah, and like I do lots of, uh, I say mental health awareness. I've spoken to some people and they say, look, it's really lovely that you do all these push-ups and you do this and you do that. But um, in reality, it's a feel good because it's not really helping me whatsoever. You can talk about climbing Everest, but the fact that I can't even get out of my bed uh, kind of speaks volumes, doesn't it? Yeah, well, you see, I'm not sure when your podcast is coming out, but the book, because of when I wrote it, was sort of been coming onto the bookshelves this mm -hmm. week. So I've been doing, you know, a couple of couple of radio interviews and everyone's going. Um, now, Gwendolyn, do you think you could keep it light and breezy? Yeah. This is summer radio. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and I go whiskey tango foxtrot. <laughs> yes. kidding me? Yeah. You know, um, and, you know, and one guy said, um, oh, you know, like, for instance, I woke up this morning and I walked along the beach and I went for a coffee and I did this and I just felt so grateful and, and it was just so wonderful and, you know, and I said, well, you know, all those things that you've just suggested, none of those are going to work for the depressed person. No. And so that's why, Brian, in this book, I've called it the book of feeling blue because people will find it less difficult to pick up than a book on depression. It was mm. like the book of overthinking, not the book of worry. It's it's that strategy. And so I do take quite a bit of time, as you've noticed at the beginning, to talk about, okay, this is the blues. And yes, diet, nutrition, exercise, problem solving, talking to your boss, etc. do contribute. They will shift that. But once it crosses the border and becomes organic, you know, like becomes mm. biological, mm. really those sorts of things are A, unattainable for the depressed person. Mm -hmm. And so in other words, they just don't feel like they can do them. And B, are not going to shift the illness. No, no. And the fact that you've mentioned that, um, and the podcast will come out tomorrow, if we are, um, the fact that you've mentioned that the sort of happy, happy, joy, joy type thing, and I know that we have lots of pressure from media um, and social media and everything else. Do you think that pressure is made 
to be happy made things even worse. Because I mean, you you never ever see anybody. I, I see on the odd occasion from a first responder, a first responder uh, sitting in a, a curled up ball, bawling their eyes out. Um, nurses during COVID was a fine example to say yeah, yeah. we can't do any more. We're overwhelmed. I don't know what to do. But do you think it's been made worse by social media, just and media, just this constant thing of let me show you my best foot. Nobody ever seems to have a hair out of place, which is rich coming from a bald man, I know, but. <laughs> I um, <laughs> I have got something in here and I'm going to keep talking because I may or may not find it. That's all right. But, That's um, I talk about the, the pressure to be happy. Yep. And... Um, You and I in the past, I think when we were talking about worry, mm -hmm. have drifted into the subject of the helicopter parent. Correct. And yep. My thing always is they don't learn to be resilient. They don't learn to cope with difficult times. So if the expectation is I should always be happy, I should never be troubled, I should never find things difficult, then that child growing up has got absolutely no skills to cope with the world, yeah. none. And so it's an incredible disservice. And they need to learn that life is not easy have a great time. We can have a great time by all means, but shit's going to happen, Brian. Yeah. 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 And I think a lot of people don't realize that it doesn't matter whether you're a good person, a bad person, an in-between person, you will have shit happen. There will be deaths happen in your life. There will be misfortunes and the such yeah. like. Um, COVID put a lot of the, what I call the, the unicorn rainbows and sunshine brigade in a world of reality and discomfort. Um, when many people started getting, and I, they used the term depressed or sad about sitting on a couch uh, for a couple of weeks. Is that too harsh? Because I know that lots of them were saying, oh, you know, I've been depressed because of COVID or, I've, I've, and I mean, look, let's be honest, and you explain it perfectly in the book, that isn't depression as such, is it? That's feeling blue about yourself. I tell you the people that I noticed really um, were impacted upon in terms of their mental health during COVID were the anxious. Mm -hmm. Now, the most obvious one is people with health anxiety. Mm -hmm. So you've got your health anxiety, you're trying to manage it, and bingo, you've got every hour of every day coverage on how many people are dying. How many people are doing this? And listening to the international news, of course, was really scary because, you know, I mean, those first responders, you know, having to wheel out bodies into a container of bodies. I mean, we can't even imagine what it was like. No, no. You know, for them. So the health anxiety people suffered. Um, people with obsessive compulsive disorder had a rough time mm -hmm. because, you know, if you think about the person with obsessive compulsive disorder 
with germ phobia and, of course, washing their hands till they bleed, right? Then everywhere you look, wash your hands, wash your hands, wash your hands. Remember the first lockdown, Brian? Yeah, I do. Don't touch your face. Yeah. Don't do this. Don't shake hands. Don't hug. Don't do this. Don't do that. Well, imagine if you've already got a condition that creates that paranoia Mm -hmm. and then not in your perceived world, but in the real world, it's actually going on. Yeah. Um, Another um, experience I had during that time was... uh, someone who started getting post-traumatic flashbacks um, because the, because the the really big lockdowns were being locked in. Mm. You know, we were, you, there's no two ways about it, you know. Right. And and so this, this one person that I worked with said that um, that subjective experience took them back to when their father used to lock them in a cupboard as mm. a child mm-hmm. that's rare but i but i still think it's an interesting example of how something a pandemic like covid can aggravate now people with the fear of judgment or social phobia the orange book uh, they love it because they don't want to go out and they don't want to mix with people no so for them it's like, wow, this is cool. <laughs> yeah. I've dreamed yeah. of this all my life. Yeah. Yeah. And look, to be honest, like, this is, I have tried to read books. I've never been depressed. Uh, I think I'm a fairly positive person. And I've tried to read books on all, both autobiographies by people who've been depressed, as well as sort of, I'm not going to say self help books, but books that explain it. Yeah. And I've never been able to get through them. Um, this sounds like an awful pun. I normally get about a third way through and go, I can't understand it. And I just find the entire thing a bit weird. But I've managed to get through all of this without any issues. And oh, it might, fabulous. might have been the fact that you started off when you spoke about blues and depression. I was like, okay, now I can see where this goes. I mean, this is a really difficult question to throw at you, Gwendolyn. But um, how do you know if you're suffering? the blues or you're depressed. I mean, I as I was reading the book, I was like, uh-huh, uh-huh. my wife said, what is it? And I said, now I know that when, for instance, my favorite sports team loses and I get that sort of cloud above my head and everything else and I get yeah. a little bit somber, I've got the blues and it's justified, that's all good, but I'm certainly not depressed, that's for sure. Um, so and you, in the book, you've put a number of uh, measurement tools that you use in your professional practice, which I I have to be honest, I sat there with a pencil and went, okay, cool, no worries, I'm, I've done that too. But is there an easy way for the layman to sort of go, am I depressed or am I suffering blues? Well, personally, Brian, this um, this scale that I've, I've put in the book, mm-hmm. it's internationally used, it's researched within an inch of its life, Um, So it's highly respected and um, will definitely enable people to work that out for themselves. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can. um, There are sort of shorter 
um, 10 item one pages. Yeah. Um, and I guess these days too, uh, people can go online. Mm-hmm. Um, and as long as the scale gives you a range, because you know how these days, you know, spectrum is a use that's word from everything to paint colors to ADHD <laughs> to yeah. bipolar disorder, you know, everyone's yeah. spectrum, this spectrum, that. But you know, in my industry and in mental health, that is particularly the case. You know, you're not um, severely depressed on Monday, happy on Tuesday. No. And you've got the blues on Wednesday. Yeah. It's not like that. No. So it is helpful to go, okay, so if you score within this range, there's nothing going on. You probably just need to have a chat to your wife or a chat to your boss. And then you move up, and then your next step tends to be where burnout sits. Mm -hmm. And the occupational um, professionals, occupational health professionals, they actually describe burnout as a mild depression. Mm -hmm. So if you scored in the mild range, there's quite a possibility that you're a bit burnt out or overwhelmed. Then it moves up, and then you're getting closer to there being more biological impairment. Mm -hmm. I'm very clear in the book to say, okay, well, look, if you're sitting at this level and you're in the you're in moderate, um, that can be resolved by talk therapy mm -hmm. very effectively. However, if it moves up even further, I'll say to people, look, you're going to need medication. And if they say to me, I, I absolutely don't want medication mm -hmm. and they're severely depressed, I'll say, well, I'm sorry, I can't help you. Mm. Yeah. Because for the professional, Brian, too, it's too high risk. If you know, if you've got someone coming in that's scoring on yes, I do think about suicide, you know, in those moderate to severe ranges, and I'm responsible as a clinician, mm -hmm. and I recommend they go to see their GP and they say no, then I can't leave myself exposed as a professional in a increasingly litigious society with people wanting to have a go. Yeah, yeah, no, you're not wrong. And that's one of the things you mentioned in the book really well is that reluctance to go and see clinicians or qualified professionals and the such like. You wrote a really interesting quote in the book. You said, one of the things you find the most intriguing about the world I practice in is some people's reluctance and often refusal, refusal to accept professional medical help why do you think we have still that stigma we've got all these health campaigns saying it's not weak to speak ask for help um you know man up and and talk to people talk to your buddies and everything else and yes granted in the last probably 10 to 15 years it has got a lot better but why do you think that there is so much reluctance for people to ask for help i mean it's not like they're going to see a mechanic 
about their car or something, but they'll happily do that. But they just yeah. won't for the for their mental health. Why do you think it is? I think a lot of it has to do with that internal stigma thing we just chatted about. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that the the pages um, where I illustrated that point was when I was talking about people who are <clears throat> significantly unwell. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> what's going on there, Brian, is that the more ill people get in terms of their mental health, the less insight. So if you've got a broken back, you know you've got a broken back. Mm-hmm. If you've got cancer, you know you've got cancer. But what happens with a lot of these psychiatric illnesses is that people have no insight into how sick they are. So that's that's the other thing that that can happen. And I think, you know, that's why I said, you know, it's amazing in, in my... Um, my profession how people have to be picked up by the police mm-hmm. by you guys and taken against their will to hospital now nobody who didn't have so because what have i said here yeah let me read this out One of the things I find intriguing is the reluctance, blah. So you have a loved one with a severe psychiatric illness, possibly a danger to themselves or others, and then you have to make the ghastly decision to have them committed and taken away by the police. Mm -hmm. Now let's flick channels and go over to the world of proper medicine, quote, unquote, Can you imagine someone having to be taken by the police for their chemotherapy session or someone who has been waiting for knee operation for two years, now limping through life in pain, having to be restrained to go for surgery? Yeah, and it's a really valid point. It's it's been happening for centuries, hasn't it? The, The police turn up and back in the 1800s, we would take people to mental asylums as they were known in the day and everything else. So I guess... The $64 million question is, if I made you the galactic overlord of all mental health around the world, how would you make it better, easier, and more acceptable for people to accept professional medical help or get the help that they needed? Can it be done, do you think? Well, if I was in that position, um and there's your little personal hobby coming up you always have some sort of star trek space agey type thing (laughs) Um, but if i uh, let's just beam me up that's how old i am i'm star trek oh that's all right Uh, i love star trek yeah so and i'm in that intergalactic sort of position um the first thing that comes to my mind is education 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 and that is what i'm proud of with the books Mm. that i've written because they've got a reading age of 12 they're full of cartoons 
they're full of jokes and they're just really accessible and and I'll be looking forward to the sort of feedback on on the book of blue because in my mind this book in particular leaves no stone unturned I mean any question about depression or the blues whatever we want to call it is answered somewhere in that book mm. i have to be honest with you i actually think it's the best book out of the lot just quietly well just quietly brian so do my publishers and my girlfriend said to me the other day do you think this is going to be your something but not poor favor but para para something so in other words oh it's like the da vinci code yeah that was dan brown's he'd written several books before that and that was the one mm -hmm. you know and um i've got a very soft spot for this one mm -hmm. well i do have a request from my wife she would like you to write the book of stubbornness and also if you could sort of give it a, a co-title with i'm sorry i didn't hear that uh, then she said, then <laughs> I might, might understand myself a little bit better, but hey, look, that's all good. Hey, look, now, one of the things that you mentioned is that fit with your professional mental health person. Um, you In the book, you liken it to going shoe shopping. You wouldn't yeah. wear, if you take a size six, you wouldn't wear a size 14. Tell everybody it looks fantastic and go. So it's one of the things that you say, and I don't think lots of people actually realize this, that if you get referred to somebody for a mental health matter or maybe you've decided to take up um some self-help yourself if you don't gel with that person it's not going to make things worthwhile is it really no no um i mean i thought i was going to find those words i'm not oh that's fine um but and you know the one that describes is this your paramount paramour forget it okay exactly yeah yeah so anyway um yeah i think that you see that one of the main theorists in the psychological therapy world and the cognitive world well a number of them actually state that 50 percent of the therapeutic effectiveness is the rapport with the client mm. so that's not five percent no it's 50 so therefore if you don't get on with the person you don't like them you don't like their style you don't like the way they dress you don't like you just don't like them mm -hmm. then there's no way that that therapy is going to work no no and when i read that i thought to myself look everybody 40 years later i can still remember my favorite school teacher and i can also remember my least favorite which is the perfect example isn't it to be fair um mm. so it's it's one of those things now also in your book and just was, before we leave that no, brian no worries. i've got um it's in the chapter called whose couch is it anyway and it talks to people about you know what types of therapy they're you know what's going to help what's not etc and um and it's so and the, these are big studies mm -hmm. but only 15 percent has to do with technique mm. 
40% has to do with client, with the client and therapist rapport. So, you know, like you might go to this, for this sort of psychotherapy or psychotherapy two, psychotherapy three, they're not going to work if you don't click mm. with the therapist. Yeah, yeah, you're not wrong. It's, I mean, it's like going to see a physical trainer, isn't it? To put latent yeah. terms on it, you'll either gel or you won't gel. Um, now, in your book, you have a fantastic. I have no idea how long it took you to write, and I'm going to ask you, but a fantastic piece on um, drugs, medicated treatment, uh, not medicated treatment. Um, and for some people, look, let's be honest, I see this as a police officer as well. It takes a wee while to get that sort of cocktail of things working well, doesn't it? I mean, it's not like a Voltaren where you can look at somebody's height, weight and BMI and go, if we give them this MG's worth of Voltaren, um, the, the swelling in their leg will go down. Very often, the medication you prescribe may take a couple of weeks to kick in. Yeah, it's it's not one size fits all, is it? It's not like pain relief drugs. Um, it, it could take a wee while before those meds that your clinic or your professional actually recommends to, to kick in. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that's what I thought. Okay, now, therapy. <laughs> uh, we have everybody from special forces soldiers, gurus, monks, uh, as part of this global personal development industry that's going around. And from the book again, in 2019, valued at $38.28 billion. Now, I've heard everything from meditative practices, extreme challenges, lifestyles, diet changes. And then, as you mentioned, um, there is just so many therapies. So if somebody is going to, maybe they're feeling a bit blue or they're feeling uh, slightly depressed, where is the very first step that they should take, in your opinion? I think your GP, because um, GPs have, you know, like fundamental knowledge mm -hmm. in terms of depression, not so, maybe not so hip in terms of anxiety conditions, but some GPs do specialize in mental health, but GPs are so busy and so overwhelmed. I mean, they're treating everything from a sprained ankle to, you know, something wrong with a baby's ears, whatever that's called. Mm -hmm. um, and so, but GPs, a good GP will have a list of providers. And so they will say, look, before I prescribe you any medication, here's a couple of names of psychologists. Go and have a chat and let's just make sure we're going in the right direction. Mm -hmm. Or if the person is very obviously depressed, prescribe and then and but still provide names of, of therapists uh, to go and chat to. And you only end up staying on a GP's provider list if you know what you're doing. Yeah. Because, because, you know, patients will go back in 
you know, oh, I went to, I went to see um, that rosemary person that you suggested and oh, I spoke to her three times, but, you know, it didn't really work. Now, rosemary's name will come off the list. Yeah. I never get taken off the list. <laughs> <laughs> well done, you. Yeah, that'll explain why nobody can get in, but <laughs> that's right. Look, and as you do, you always cover all the bases. So you covered natural therapies as well. And in 2021, you said about $100 billion, it was worth about $100 billion. Now, before, and you mentioned this quite well, before you go and take them as an alternative to pharma medicines, um, is the danger of uh, Dr. Wikipedia or Dr. Google with natu natural medicines, is there a real danger there? Because so many people, look, let's be honest, we all know these people. Oh, I think I've got this. I'm just going to have a look at Dr. Google. Dr. Google recommends I should pop up to the herbalist up the road who, that's next door to the supermarket, very generic, and take 15 of these capsules a day. That's not the way it needs to be done, is it? You actually need to see a professional who's got the, the skills in natural medicine, so to speak. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. That's the point that I make, Brian. I mean, health professionals, we've all got our scepticism about Dr. Wikipedia and Dr. Google. Um it is a problem. Yep. And sometimes people who are anti-big pharma will go straight to mm. the natural alternative mm -hmm. without even talking to the GP because that's the world we live in. Mm -hmm. um, but the point that I, that I made in that chapter is that even within the natural alternative medicine world, there are still goodies and baddies. Mm. So you, you, because they, they don't have the same restrictions that big pharma has, mm -hmm. I mean, without that sort of legislation, I mean, you and I could go down the beach and fill up some capsules and sell them for 80 bucks a bottle of 25. Yeah. yep. You know, um, and I'm not just saying that because, you know, I lean much more towards sort of an orthodox medical approach, but that is the fact of it. Mm. That, um, I mean, I, I, I spoke at a, um, a conference for, for trainees and, you know, and I was quite interested in some of the research that they're doing in terms of, of, of things that can be used and also their understanding too of what orthodox medicine does and how they can maybe augment mm. the orthodox medicine so so that's just another bridge that has to be has to be worked on yeah i mean i, I know talking to people overseas that i know um Lots of people see uh, things like CBD oil, for instance, as the panacea to cure all. Um, and when I've spoken to some of my friends overseas who have tried it, they've said it didn't do anything for me. I wouldn't recommend it if if I was going to do that. So I always say to people, look, you've got to consult a professional. That's just the way it is. Um, what was the trickiest chapter of this book to write? Because as I read the book, 
I was sitting there and I know you quite well. I thought for me, it would have had to have been the faith crises of faith and depression chapter. Cause that's a fairly, uh, how do I put this nicely? Rage, raise a sort of sharp subject, isn't it? When you're talking yeah. about faith and depression, um, was that the trickiest chapter of the book for you to write or not? It is certainly the chapter where I need to be aware of every word, mm. you know, because I write very concisely, as you know, and so therefore each word has got a job. Um, so let me just find that. 51. I'll just give you an example, Brian. Oh, here we go. Um, so far, I've focused on health-based services, psychology, psychiatry, naturopathy, and so on. But then it occurred to me that I've not yet acknowledged the relationship many people have. And here's the sentence that took a long time. With their church, comma, their chosen chosen spiritual beliefs mm -hmm. and or their spirituality as it relates to their culture. You know, because so you've got the cultural, you've got the spirituality, you've got orthodox religion, you've got outside orthodox religion, you know. So mm -hmm. the rest of the chapter um, was, you know, just fairly easy but that sentence took yeah 45 minutes mm. when you see people like that who are they do uh, are fairly religious and they're also getting depressed and I'm, you must have seen this as in your clinic is it a uh, more of a double barreled sort of um factor i guess because you've not only are they getting depressed but they've also probably got a, a they're questioning their faith or they have a lack of their faith as well yeah. because is that uh, is that a real real big issue one of the reframing jobs that i do on that <clears throat> and i think i wrote it in there but you know like if people have got religious motivation behind their refusal or reluctance to have anything to do with medication i will say to them okay well look let me put it this way um if we go down the path that god created humanity god then would have created a brain that developed that enabled us to accumulate the knowledge to design and create effective treatments. So the medications are from God. Mm. I have reasonable success with that. Mm. I can see that. Mm. I can see that. All right, let's just move on because you've got so much, um, so many topics in here. It's, it's almost difficult to talk in one podcast. You also talk about baby blues and postnatal depression. And we all know that grandmother who sort of says, oh, give the baby to me for a couple of hours, get some sleep and rest. But the more we find out about young mums and postnatal depression and everything else, we see how many layers there are to things like childbirth and child rearing and the such like. 
many, uh, how do I put this nicely, yesteryear parents look at parents of today and go, oh, they just overcomplicate things. And we've spoken about bulldozer parents and tractor parents and helicopter parents. Yeah, yeah. Um, do you think that's a real thing? Do you think um, an actual fact, if we look at it and take a step back, we should actually be meeting on common ground? Or do you think that we are sometimes overcomplicating things. Um, like you've said before, and we've spoken about it before, many people basically teach their children not to have any resilience because of the way that they manage them uh, in their day-to-day -day work. But do you think that we are overcomplicating um, parenting for a lot of people or not? Tricky one, Brian, because we're now living in a complicated world, mm -hmm. you know, and that that's more getting into sort of child teen things. I mean, with um you know, parenting in infancy, um see I I for instance would have clients in my in their thirties and forties, say, and I'll say, um so tell me a bit about your childhood. Mm. Well, um, mum was was really withdrawn, and I remember after my younger brother was born, nobody talked about it, but I think she was depressed, and, and I think she probably had postnatal depression with me. Yeah. But the key phrase being, but nobody talked about it. Mm. So... It's not, it's like anything else. It's not like postnatal depression is new, but talking about it is new. Mm. Yep. Awareness of it is new. Mm. Yep. Now, one of the things that you do cover off in this book, and as a dad, I thank you from the bottom of my heart, because it's one of the very first books I've read where you actually go, but let's not forget number two parent. Uh, I have read entire books where um, number two parent will get like maybe three sentences and 300, 400 pages. Um, it often feels like you get overlooked as the number two parent. Why do you think it is? Do you think it's just that thing of if you're the number two parent, you have to sort of do the stiff upper lip, modern day sort of stoic thing, I'll help my partner pull through type stuff? Um, or is it just... Uh, do you think we're getting any better at that? It's it, There just seems to be this constant thing of we look at the number one parent and very often the number two parent, and we both see, we've both seen people like this, that you can look at the number two parent and go, they're only about three steps behind unraveling as quickly as number one parent. Firstly, I think that um, it's just not even thought about. Mm-hmm. You know, like number two parent is the phrase that I've used so that we've got um, two mums and two dads, you know. So in today's world, you've got all sorts of different combinations of parenting. So mm -hmm. um, so in, in, the, in the classic sort of um, the, the traditional mum, dad, I just think dads weren't even thought about. Mm -hmm. It just wasn't even a consideration, mm -hmm. you know. And then... Um, I I must have been in a conference in Australia uh, over 10 years ago and I was sitting next to this Australian psychiatrist and he um, 
he said, oh, I've, I've been having a look at your book, Gwendolyn. He said, um, I noticed, this is another book that I wrote. He said, I, I noticed that you haven't got anything in there about dads. He said, because I've just finished a big research project up in Queensland mm -hmm. on postnatal depression in men. So I've never forgotten that conversation. Yeah. And so yeah, I was researching that chapter and I looked it up. And, of course, it makes total sense because, you know, the same protective instincts in the DNA are activated with the father. Mm -hmm. If the father's prone to worrying, that will wind up and good old sleep deprivation. Mm. Yep, which, as you've explained many times, uh, once you get that sleep deprivation, it's a slippery path, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So now one of the other things that you say is, and I completely concur with this, the true epidemic with our youth is anxiety, which as a police officer I've seen myself, um, and after COVID it seems to be getting possibly a little bit worse, especially in younger kids. Um, there are so many factors in young people's anxiety these days if I gave you $200 million, Gwendolyn, and said to you, you're now the Minister of Health, where would you tackle it first and why? Same as what I said before, schools, yeah. education. Yeah. Um, I mean, I've sort of been, since I saw you last, I've sort of been trying to set up a non-for-profit trust. Mm-hmm. And I went down the path of, well, kids these days, apps, interactive learning, and the cost was just prohibitive. I mean, mm. there was no way I was going to raise those sort of funds. No. But I just think that if you can get in and educate in a way that's fun with cartoons that destigmatizes, because when I, after Knowing came out, Brian, my practice sort of filled up with 16 plus year olds. Yeah. And I just had such a good success rate because you see, the conditioning's not that old. No. You know, if I'm working with someone with anxiety and they're 43, I've got a much bigger job than if I'm working with someone who worries and overthinks at 17. Yeah. And they're just... Again, if you get the rapport, if they like you, I usually swear quite profoundly in the first three or four minutes as a rapport building exercise. <laughs> I yes, of course. Yeah, for professional purposes. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. That's why I said Whiskey Tango Foxtrot. Did you like that, Brian? I did. Well done. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, again, I think it's all about education. Mm. Yeah. Not wrong. Now, in the book you mentioned, and it's fantastic, you mentioned many different forms, symptoms, and factors of teenage phases that many families experience, including how to help as a parent and caregiver. And I'm not going to mention any of those. If you want to find out, go and buy the book. Um, I'm not here to give you the edited highlights of Gwendolyn's book. That's not fair on her. Um, but, and we've answered this question many a times on podcasts, but I'm going to do it again just so that people get it. Are the kids of today softer, weaker or less resilient than say a kid of the 1960s or 70s because you very often hear those sort of hard-nosed um 
individuals that are saying, oh, you know, everybody's gone soft these days. You know, they, they overthink stuff and blah, blah, blah. Do you think that's true? Or do you just think it's a, a different era? There's lots of different pressures. Let, let's be honest, I'm a child of the 70s. I didn't have social media. Um, even now when I talk to some of the kids about, and I know you'll be familiar with this, having to wait to see a music video in the 80s for it to actually come from an overseas country or the such like, or wait to buy music and that type of stuff. Kids look at me as if I've come from Mars or Venus. Mm. Uh, so so is it just a different era, a different type of child, or do you think they are less resilient than maybe those kids from the 60s and the 70s? I think it's nature and nurture. Because mm-hmm. let's face it, a lot of teens are on social media and they use it to find out where everyone's going to be on Saturday night yeah. or blah, blah, and that's it. There's, there's no anxiety response. There's no nothing. Then you get the young people with a different genetic temperament who are completely sort of buzzed out by the whole experience. So mm. I... Yeah, I mean, certainly that that whistleblower mm. that came out last year from Facebook, you know, with the manipulation of the algorithms and, mm. and all that sort of stuff, I think there is no doubt that there are very complex global environmental issues impacting young people. Mm. But I think that it's important not to forget that the genetic predispositions to anxiety creates vulnerability to the environment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, not wrong. Now, lots of people, when they start talking teenagers, straight away they flip and say, oh, social media, it's the devil in disguise as far as teenage mental health is. And I always say to them, look, potentially, yes, for some children it is. Um, but if we flip that on its head and go back to the 50s, um, Elvis was the devil in disguise to children of that generation. There's always going to be a devil in disguise. Do you think that we place too much importance on social media for teenagers? Um, and as we've stated before, you've said that anxiety is the, you believe is the biggest issue, as I do. Do you think we should be placing more on anxiety as opposed to looking for social media to be the sort of full stop when it comes to teenage mental health? There's a term in research which is beware of looking for reductionistic theory. So Mm -hmm. in other words, beware of trying to reduce the answer to one thing. If we again go back to physical medicine, Mm -hmm. um, you've got an ingrown toenail. Off you go. And the ingrown toenails got to come off. So the focus is on the toe and the focus is on removing the toenail and then perhaps some antibiotic cream to stop an infection. Mm -hmm. End of story. You're not looking for some big, 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 you know, Mm. you're not going, right, well, that's happened because of this Mm -hmm. one thing. It's never one thing, Brian. No. It's always all of the above. Right. 
Um, while we're on the topic of all of the above, mm. let's talk about the chapter in your book, Gender, Sexuality and Depression, um, which covers the rainbow community. And as you and I both know, we've both got friends in the rainbow community. That particular community or communities, as it is, um, has an awful lot of, shall we say, more statistics when it comes to depression and suicide and the such like. Many people struggle with it, and that's just the, the use of pronoun use. Um, why do you think that people just struggle so much with the whole gender, sexuality and depression thing? I mean, people will very often look at members from the rainbow community and go, oh, well, you know, they're sort of a square peg in a round world. And that's slowly changing. And that is a fantastic thing. But why do you think lots of people just struggle with that um, identifying those issues in the rainbow community? First thought that comes to mind, Brian, is homophobia is alive and well. Correct. And you only have to, and, you know, I think, you know, I'm looking at it at a glance anyway, I think, I mean, New Zealand's certainly got nowhere near the problems that they have in America. No. I mean, look at that gay nightclub. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so there's that. And the people that I, I did a couple of interviews in this chapter. You did, yep. And and the big thing is bullying, 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 bullying. Um, so I also think, because I did a lot in this chapter, I talked about gender and I talked about sexuality and I talked about, I talked to the individual, the person, mm -hmm. and I talked to the parents so that you know to help them because the the thing that a lot of people don't understand is that the gender identity phenomena has got nothing to do with who you want to sleep with no it's not a sexuality issue and I I really learned a lot from writing this chapter that um, and then I reflected back on um, transgender clients I've had over the years. And again, what we're talking about is not choice, although I mean, I have taken time again to talk about another spectrum. Mm-hmm. You know, because that's what non-binary is about. It's True. like not hetero, homo, bi. Mm. It's sometimes I feel like this and so, you know, whatever. But the the thing that I believe is really important to understand is that um, when people say, like my friend did in this book, I knew from as long as I can remember that I was in the wrong body. Mm. And I've seen it over and over again, you know, like I, I was thinking of one young client, trans, depressed, highly anxious, started the female hormones, end of story, mm. Mm -hmm. with the depression, anxiety, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, so, and also 
years ago, I worked with another trans client and she was in a um, born into a very religious community mm -hmm. and um, was just, she was so close to suicide. I'm actually surprised that she didn't because the stigma from, from her religious community was, you know, not, mm. not pleasant at all. And yet again, I said, what, when, when did the suicidal stuff leave you? And she said, within about a week of starting the female hormone. Mm. Mm. And other psychiatrists I've spoken to say the same. Mm. And, yeah. and I, I think that's intriguing that, I mean, where the big controversy is, is with um, the really young ones yeah. wanting to make the transition. That's the big controversy. Yeah. Um, particularly reassignment surgery. Um, but yeah, so I digress. But but what I guess what we're talking about is you've got sexuality and then you've got gender identity. They are not the same. No. So hence they've got two separate chapters with two separate guides for parents. Mm. Yeah, and I... I mean, I'm a diversity officer for the police, but there was stuff in there that even I just went, well, okay, I've never actually thought of it that way. I mean, I've had a number of my friends who are transgender uh, who, as part of their journey, have taken on therapy and medication and everything else. And I don't, and I still say this to people now, I don't believe the average punter has any idea about how difficult it is to be transgender in in today's world it's yeah it's um the only way i can explain it to people is to say it's like being a bumper car i said you don't um get just sort of hit from one angle you literally get hit from about seven or eight different angles and everywhere you turn you cannot find help or support and then when you do find uh, that help and support it's like an absolute godsend yeah and so just while we're on that chapter I've also put a thing in there that um, when young people, whether it's a sexuality or a gender issue, <coughs> make sure the therapist that you're seeing knows what they're doing. Mm. Yeah, because it is a bit of a buzz topic at the moment isn't it like you've said you know oh yeah reassignment and pronouns and everything else so all right and then finally one of the best things that you mentioned is and again it's not something that very often people talk about is um old people and depression um and like i once had a friend of mine his grandmother often said don't ever forget uh brian that there and every woman who's over the age of 60 or 70 there is a 21-year-old woman who's drunk more booze than you've ever drunk, partied harder than you've ever partied. And then she used to say to me, and wink, <coughs> she may have even slept with more sailors than you had too. Um, right, which um, is something that as we get older, I, I guess maybe we see our mortality more, but it's something a lot of police officers in general and also service people, when they lose their sort of youth and their identity as their role that they've been in life, 
they start to struggle, their body starts to age, they're not 22 anymore. What's the best thing to do if we were looking for some sort of advice? In what regard? Just to losing to losing your identity. Well, not losing your identity, but that thing of getting older, losing your identity. And I mean, look, youth is just a fleeting moment in time, but just that thing of getting a little bit older and actually maturing a bit, not being able to do quite what you used to do and everything else. Do you think it's just one of those things you've got to accept and move on? Acceptance is the end of the pathway of any life stage thing, Brian. Yeah. Or you know, mm -hmm. I mean, Kubler Ross in her grief model, because yeah. what we're talking about is okay. So you're losing your agility. Well, mind you, you see some eighty-year-olds doing yoga is pretty far out. But, yeah, yeah, it's pretty amazing. Yeah, yeah, but um, so you 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 know you've lost this. I mean, women, we become invisible very quickly. Mm -hmm. you know, I remember I was visiting a girlfriend in Sydney once, and this is decades ago, and we were walking down some street. She said, did you notice that? I said, what? She said, exactly. <laughs> Not a single wolf whistle, Brendan. <laughs> we are now officially <laughs> invisible. <laughs> and I said... Whiskey Tango Foxtrot. Oh, yeah, yeah. It was so true. Yeah. So when the whistling stops, you know that you're on the other, you know, you're in the second half. Mm. No more oranges. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. it. Yeah, exactly. We're now officially in the second half. <laughs> yeah. I, I like, um, I love the way that the Japanese talk about this. They talk about seasons. Um, so I'm in autumn at the moment. Um, which I think I think it's a particularly nice way of putting it. You may or may not know the answer to this, but how old do most people feel in their head? It's a quite a common question we ask lots of people. And I thought actually I must ask Gwendolyn. So you may not know generically, but if I said to you, Gwendolyn, how old do you feel in your head? It wouldn't be your age of years, would it? I actually don't feel any age. Yeah. Which I completely you know, understand too. Yeah, yeah. I'm not taking the piss. I just no, no, no. Um, oh well, today I think like this. That's great. Uh, probably when I was 16, I wouldn't have had this much wisdom, but I still seem to do all right. Yeah, you know yeah. what I mean. So yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. it's like people say. I mean, particularly as a you know as a therapist and now as an author. Um, I really like the fact that I think about things and write about things these days that anybody from the age of 12 upwards can get. Mm. Mm -hmm. And so I sort of, in fact, it's funny because some of my young clients, when they'll come into reception, when I used to work from an office, COVID stopped that, yeah. um, and I'll say something and these young ones will say to me, well, Gwendolyn, that's just because talking to you is like talking to a big brainy child. <laughs> if it works, take it. Yeah. 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 No, that's all good. I like that. That's very good. So, <laughs> all right. So two last two questions for you. 
Um, one of the notes that you put in the back of the book, and it's um, quite comprehensive, depression runs in families, right? So if you have a history of it in your family and you need help, um, you say something similar to, don't forget to tell your medical professional about your family tree. Yeah, yeah. yeah. How, how does this help you? As a medical professional, Gwendolyn, how does that help you to know that great uncle Tommy suffered depression and, you know, mum suffered postnatal depression? Well, it's important to a practitioner to know that you are, in fact, genetically predisposed. Mm -hmm. um, what difference does it make in terms of prescribing? It doesn't make much difference to me as a psychologist per se, um, but if you know someone's family tree is loaded, um, you know that, that you've got to look for that biological contribution. You've got to account for it. Mm. Mm. Okay, all right. And then the final question is quite simply this. I know, and I know you'll be doing the uh, media junket for the next sort of couple of weeks, uh, promoting the book of Feeling Blue and people asking you to give 30-second remedies on something which has taken mm. close to 400 pages. But have you got another book coming or on the way or in the back of your mind you're going, hmm, at? You don't even have to tell me a colour, Gwendolyn. Well, funny enough, this year, Brian... I can tell you the colour, but I don't know what the book's going to be about. All so right. we've got yellow, orange, green, blue. Sounds like the sort of pride flag. It does, yeah, it it does is. yeah. Um, I'm toying with red. Nice. Okay. Oh, well, Gwendolyn, it's always a pleasure. It's always fun. Thanks, man. Take care. Yeah, Look Brian. after yourself. Thanks for listening. But please do Constable Brian and I a favour and be sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on the next Coppuccino podcast. Real people, real stories.